Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. Um, we, I'm, I'm glad you came to join us this morning. We had a, a last-minute family trip come up, um, but I, I am glad you're here this morning. So I pre-recorded the sermon for you, so let's go ahead and get started with that. This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. Um, well, today, we're talking about political assassinations, right? politicians taking out their opponents. Often, when we hear about politicians conspiring to, to assassinate their opponents, we think of modern times. Right? There, there are plenty of rumors that, that Vladimir Putin has had several of his political opponents assassinated. You might remember several months ago that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, uh, which is a Russian paramilitary force. He led his private army on a, on a march toward Moscow, threatening to attack because they were upset about how they were being treated in the war in Ukraine. They managed to come to an agreement before things got too heated, but a lot of people said that Prigozhin better watch his back because Putin doesn't take too kindly to these type of things. And Well, you might also remember that just about two months after that fact, Prigozhin's private jet had a catastrophic explosion which killed everybody on board, including Prigozhin himself. Moscow won't admit that they assassinated him, but most people seem to think so. But even in our own nation's history, right, JFK made a whole lot of people in the CIA and the FBI pretty upset. So there are lots of rumors that, well, our, our government had our own president assassinated. But even though we can think of these modern examples, political assassinations aren't a new thing. If anything, these assassinations are much less common than they were in previous eras of human history. This morning, we're going to look at a text where Jesus is the target of one of these conspiracies. And of course, with this sermon series being called An Unexpected King, well, we definitely should expect some political turmoil. So like I said, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, and the title of this sermon is Mourning for Jerusalem. But the main idea is that Jesus' death is God's plan for salvation. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' death is God's plan for salvation. So I've got this text broken into three divisions. Um, there's assassina uh, assassination plans, undeterred by threats, and a lament for Jerusalem. I'm going to pray, and we'll go ahead and get into this text. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open up your word, I pray, God, that, that your word will cut deep into our hearts, transform us into who you are, reveal your truth to us, and God, help us to glorify you to those around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and get started right here in verse 31. It says, At that time, some Pharisees said to him, Get away from here. If you want to live, Herod Antipas wants to kill you. So this verse starts with these three words, at that time. Right? Of course, we've said several times in the past that in order to truly understand what the text is saying, we have to have the, the context there's historical context and cultural context, but there's also textual context. This is what, what are the words right before this and after this saying? Right, so 
this is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that I like to preach through the, the Bible at one book at a time. It's easier to keep that textural context in mind. And so verse 31 says, at that time. Well, at what time? Luke is pretty much telling us that, that, that this is happening just about immediately after the events that we read about last week in the verses immediately before this. All right, so last week we read about Jesus' warning that the door to heaven was narrow and that those Jews who thought they had a special invite just because they were Jews needed to reassess some things. Jesus warned them that they would not enter the kingdom just because they were the physical descendants of Abraham. They would not get into the kingdom of God just because of their ethnicity or their religious background. The Jews get into heaven just like everyone else through faith in Jesus. They had this false mentality that they were, they were God's people just because they came from the, the physical lineage of Abraham. But let me tell you something. Nobody gets into heaven based on their lineage. Nobody gets into heaven based on who they are. You don't even get into heaven by going to church. You can't get into heaven by being a good enough person. The only way into heaven is by faith in Jesus. That's because we are all sinners. All of us have sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. See, instead of heaven, we all deserve hell and eternal punishment. But God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to take that punishment for us. He died on the cross to pay that penalty that we deserve. And when we place our faith in him, he takes our guilt and he gives us his righteousness. This is the only way to be saved and have eternal life in heaven. So that when, when Luke says at that time, he's referring to that previous text. Let's look at what these Pharisees tell Jesus, though. They say, get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Well, why would Herod want to kill Jesus? Well, honestly, if you've been around church for any amount of time, or if you've ever heard the Christmas story, you probably already know the answer to this question. Now, if you're new here, or if you've never heard this before, I'm glad you're here this morning. Right? Now, we have to also recognize this is not the same Herod that we read about in the Christmas narrative. Um, Herod the Great was the guy that we read about in Matthew chapter 2 during that, that Christmas narrative. After Herod the Great died... His jurisdiction was broken up into several pieces that were governed over by his sons. Herod Antipas was the son that was given Galilee and Perea. Herod was a, a puppet king under the authority of the Roman government. He didn't really have his own authority, and he'd better not cross Caesar. Herod would see this Messiah as a threat to his rule. This Messiah was coming, and it was a, a threat to his position. See, if Jesus were to lead a revolution and win Israel's independence from Rome, then Herod would be out of a job and probably executed. Or if Jesus tried to lead a revolution and Caesar got word of it, he might think that Herod is letting things get out of hand and replace him with somebody else and probably executed. So according to Herod's calculations, it was Jesus' life or his own, and he wasn't going down without a fight. But what I find more interesting here is, or with a more interesting question, is why would the Pharisees want to help Jesus? 
Luke tells us here that it was some Pharisees that warned Jesus to get out of Herod's jurisdiction. Why would they want to help Jesus? Because, see, throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees are portrayed as Jesus' enemies. You would think that they would stay silent about this threat, and they would let Herod kill him. But no, they warn him and tell him to get away. I think there are three possibilities about why these Pharisees would warn Jesus. So one possibility. They recognized that Jesus was gaining a following and, then, and they were trying to scare Jesus away before he got too popular. Right? They were scared that he might actually start a revolution and bring retaliation from the Roman Empire. But if they could just send him off to the backwoods, and nobody would know who he was. Because, see, it's, it's really hard to lead a revolution if nobody knows who you are. The second reason would be that, well, this is very similar to the first, right? The Pharisees were jealous of Jesus. He was growing in popularity as a teacher and as a prophet. They saw Jesus as someone who was simply stealing their popularity. And on top of that, he was constantly insulting them and pointing out their sins. So if they could send Jesus away, then they could have their popularity back. They could go back to their their position of power and get back to their old act. And the third option, on the other hand, this this one is very different, right? So the third option is that There are a few places in Scripture that hint that there might have been a few Pharisees who actually believed in Jesus, or at least were not hostile to him. So if that's the case, then this warning might have in fact been sincere. Why did the Pharisees warn Jesus? Well, I gave you three reasons. We don't actually know. But whatever the reason is, Jesus doesn't hold back his response. Picking up in verse 32, Jesus replied, go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and the third day I will accomplish my purpose. Yes, today and tomorrow and the next day I must proceed on my way for it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. Jesus tells the Pharisees, go tell that fox. So think of the phrase sly as a fox, right? Foxes, they're sneaky. They're sneaky predators that sneak up on their prey and attack from seemingly nowhere. Herod the Great and his son, Herod Antipas, see these guys, they were both pretty popular among the Jews. The Herods had a, a respect for the Jewish religion and its practices, even though they themselves weren't Jews. The Herods are remembered, as in, are remembered in history as two rulers who spent a lot of time and money and effort building up the city of Jerusalem especially the temple complex. This made him very popular among the Jews. But behind the scenes, the Herods, they were cruel, they were ruthless, they were evil, and they were corrupt. In Matthew 2, we read that Herod the Great schemed to have Jesus killed as a baby. And then when his plan was thwarted, he went back and had all boys the same age as Jesus killed, hoping that he might kill this one boy. In Mark 6, we read where Herod Antipas had John the Baptist thrown in jail for criticizing the fact that he married his brother's wife. Later, Herod had John beheaded because his wife didn't like the fact that John kept criticizing their marriage. Even more dangerous for Jesus, we also read there in Mark 6 that Herod thought that Jesus 
might actually be John the Baptist who'd come back from the dead. So Herod might want to come and kill him a second time to make sure he's really dead this time, make sure he stays dead. So here, even though the Herods prove to be dangerous enemies, Jesus doesn't hesitate to call him out for his sly and evil ways. Jesus says, I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and the third day. I will accomplish my purpose. See, Jesus, is in, is, he's not going to let this threat stop him from doing what he came here to do. He came here to heal the sick. He came here for freedom from those trapped in demonic possession. And most importantly, he came here for salvation for the lost. And see, in this passage... Jesus is pretty much saying the same thing that he said early in his ministry in a story that we read all the way back in Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scripture. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them, The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Jesus said that he was the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah. And he continues to echo that same message here in chapter 13. See, it doesn't matter what type of religious or political opposition Jesus might face. See, these threats against his life, they don't scare him because he knew that he came here to die for our sins anyway. Herod is threatening to kill Jesus. But little does Herod know that in doing so, Herod is actually fulfilling God's plan for our salvation. Jesus was sinless, yes, but he was punished for our sins. The punishment that he took was ours to bear. It's what we deserve, what we have earned, and the debt that we were supposed to pay. But his death paid off our debts. He took our punishment in our place so that through faith in him, we can be made righteous. This is a biblical concept known as substitutionary atonement. It's that, that Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for our sins so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. His death bought our citizenship in the kingdom of God. But Jesus, he didn't stay dead. Since he is righteous, death has no power over him. On the third day, he was resurrected from the grave. And this resurrection shows his victory over death and the truth about who he is. The truth that he truly is God. Jesus references that resurrection here in this passage when he says, The third day I will accomplish my purpose. That third day Jesus is referencing his resurrection. Because without the resurrection, there is no gospel. And since Jesus is expecting to die, this threat doesn't intimidate him. Instead, he says, yes, today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must proceed on my way, 
For it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. Now, I mentioned this last week, and I'm going to repeat it again. This journey toward Jerusalem started all the way back in chapter 9, and it's going to continue until about halfway through chapter 19. That means that Jesus' final journey toward Jerusalem takes up about half of the book of Luke. Several times along this journey, Jesus warns his disciples that he's going to die in Jerusalem. But they just simply, they don't seem to get it. They don't understand. This time, though, Jesus isn't just telling his disciples. He's announcing it to a whole crowd. He's even announcing it to the Pharisees there that he is going to Jerusalem so that he can die. He's proclaiming it that he's going to be killed by the religious establishment. And look what Jesus says if we keep reading. Picking up in verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills God's prophets. I'm sorry, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned. And you will never see me again until you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus starts off this lament with, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. See, Jesus is not mincing words when he says that the prophets are killed in Jerusalem. He's calling out the city's religious establishment for their history of rejecting God's prophets. He knows that he's next in line, but he's not worried about himself. He's giving this lament not for his own life, but this lament is for Israel. It's about Jerusalem. He's crying out for the nation and its capital city, which have a long history of killing and rejecting God's messengers. Jesus is saying that the religious leaders of Jerusalem are continuing this tradition of violence and rejection. He's, he's warning them that they will face judgment for their sins. He's also warning the people of Israel. Jesus is telling them that they need to repent from their sins and turn back to him. If they do not, they will face the same judgment as the religious establishment. Jesus' words are a powerful message of warning and hope. He's calling out the religious leaders of Jerusalem for their sins, but he's also offering hope to the people of Israel. He's telling them that they can be forgiven and that they can have a new beginning. Then Jesus offers this analogy. He says, How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. This symbolism has showed up several times already in Scripture, several times in the Old Testament. It's a way to describe God's protection. See, Psalm 17, 8 says, Guard me as you would guard your own eyes. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. And then Ruth 2.12 says, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. See, Jesus desires to see the Jews saved. He longs to be their protector, but they reject him. Now, one of the things I like about going through Scripture the way that we do, verse by verse, is that there are times when topics come up in the text that speak to current events. See, we started this sermon series about three years ago, almost three years ago. 
Yes, we've taken a few breaks along the way. But when we started this sermon series, there's no way that I could have planned for this passage to come up just shortly after Israel was attacked. See, this passage comes up at a time that, that's relevant for current events. Going through texts, like, or going through the Bible in the way that we do, it, it is amazing to see how God works and how God makes this, this stuff align with, with what's going on. Sometimes it's personal events and lives of the people in the congregation, or sometimes it, it lines up with major geopolitical events happening in the world. But it's clear, and when you read Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people of Israel and that land have a special place in God's plan. See, currently with the war going on in Israel, I have been shocked at the number of, well, sometimes veiled, but sometimes blatant anti-Semitic statements or rallies. We as Christians, we have to recognize that these people and that land have a special place in God's plan. So we stand with them. But also as Christians, we must recognize that salvation is only through faith in Jesus. So just like anything else in the Christian life, we should strive to have the same mentality as Jesus when it comes to the Jews and Israel. We desire their salvation and we long for them to come under God's protection. But we also recognize that all those who have rejected Jesus are not saved. Jesus finishes this out. He says, And now look, your house is abandoned, and you will never see me again until you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. By saying that their house is abandoned, Jesus is telling them that these people who were God's chosen people have left God. They've turned their backs on him and they have rejected him. With their rejection of Jesus, they are rejecting their status as God's people and they don't know him. When he says, you will never see me again, I don't think he's referring to simply laying eyes on him. He's talking about a, a, a vision or a sight that comes with knowledge. Right? He's not talking about just seeing him. He's talking about seeing him. When Jesus enters Jerusalem in Luke 19, these people do shout this phrase, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, but they still don't understand what Jesus is doing. They think and they hope that he's coming in to lead a revolution and kick out the Romans and establish Israel as a sovereign nation. They want to make him their earthly king. But Jesus' kingship will not be fully realized until he returns in the end times. Jesus went to Israel, Jesus went to Jerusalem the first time to be sacrificed for our sins so that he could have a people with him in his kingdom. But when he returns, he will return in power as the righteous, eternal, almighty king of the universe. He came the first time as the sacrificial lamb, but he will return as the Lion of Judah. Last week, we read that when that final day comes, it will be too late to accept Jesus' salvation. So we pray for the Jews' salvation, not simply from terrorists, but more importantly, salvation from their sin of unbelief. And we pray that same prayer for all who do not know Jesus. We pray that they will come to saving faith through a personal relationship in Jesus. And if you don't know him as your Savior today, we pray that you will come to know him. We pray that you will be saved. Accept him as your Savior. Let him pay your sin debt. 
and be welcomed into the family of God and into his eternal kingdom. So what application do we get from this passage? Our application always comes from our definition of a disciple because we're trying to apply this passage to our lives as disciples. Our definition of a disciple comes from Matthew 4.19 where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And in that we have our three indicators. It's the knowing, being, and doing. So our first application point is to know, right? So know God's plan, sorry, know that God planned Jesus' death. In this passage, we see that the Pharisees trying to scare Jesus away from Jerusalem because Herod is conspiring to kill Jesus, right? It's political assassination. For most people, knowing that the son of the king who tried to kill you as a baby and and the, the guy who just had your cousin beheaded is now trying to kill you, for most people, that would be enough to deter them. But Jesus doesn't let that change his plans. He tells the Pharisees, that Herod, or he tells the Pharisees to tell Herod that Jesus isn't scared. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells the whole crowd there that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. This is because this was the plan the whole time. We're first told this plan all the way back in Genesis 3 when God told the serpent that he would bruise the son's heel, but that the son would crush the serpent's skull. Jesus has already been telling his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to die for our sins. And this is God's plan for your salvation. See, we all sinned, and therefore we all deserve hell. But God loves us so much that he sacrificed himself to take that punishment for us. He defeated death when he was resurrected on the third day, and when we place our faith in him, we can be saved from our guilt and our eternal damnation. When we place our faith in him, Jesus takes our guilt and gives us his righteousness. Then we are welcomed into God's family and into his eternal kingdom. Place your faith in him today and know him as Lord and Savior. Our B application is to be heartbroken over Israel. When we watch the news and we see or hear all of the horrible, evil attacks on Israel, we are heartbroken. We're heartbroken because we know that the Jews and land of Israel are special in God's story, and to see them attacked is both shocking yet expected. It's shocking because that evil hurts to see, but it's also expected because we read about it in Scripture. But more importantly, we're heartbroken over Israel because these people who were chosen by God to be the people through which he would reveal himself has rejected him. God revealed himself to the Israelites in the Old Testament through revelation, through miracles, through prophecy, and through covenants. But in the New Testament, God more clearly revealed himself by being born as a Jew and living among them to accomplish our salvation. So we're heartbroken because these people have rejected God. And our final application, is to our due application, is to pray for Israel. We pray for them, both in this current war and, more importantly, in the spiritual war for their eternal destination. We pray that they will fight this war with God's wisdom and righteousness. We pray that that God will protect them and protect all the non-combatants that are intentionally placed in harm's way. And we pray that they will come to know Jesus as their Savior so they can be brought back into the family of God and enjoy him for all eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom. Lord, this morning, we pray, God, that you will show us 
your truth. Show us where we are not like you and help us to, to be formed by your word so we can be more like you. God, I pray if anybody does not know you, that you will reveal yourself to them so they can come to know you for salvation. We pray for your wisdom and your protection in this war. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit victorybaptisthopemills.com or facebook.com slash vbchopemills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.